it says that Christ died to pay for the sins of people who will one day end up in hell for all eternity. And that atonement will secure the condemnation. See, that's why it's not wasted, like he says. The blood of Christ is not wasted because when people who deny Christ and will not repent for their sins are judged before God, God is gonna bring the blood of his son and says, what did you do with this? So you have no excuse. I provided, I gave you a million ways out not to sin, yet you still sin. And even after you sin, I provide an atonement for you. Here's the blood of my son. There's his body beaten up. What did you do? So that blood is not gonna be wasted. That blood is gonna secure the condemnation of those who reject the provision that Christ made for them. Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for February 3rd, 2019. Today, Brother Omar brings us the fourth message in a series called Statement of Faith, Doctrine of Salvation. Now, Brother Omar reminds us that not all men will accept salvation, even though Jesus died for all. He says that the atonement is for everyone, even those that don't choose to accept the gift of salvation. So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's Word here on Followers of the Way. Last time we talked about the doctrine of salvation and we talked about the happy topic of Reformed theology and the idea that Christ did not die for the sins of all men but the sins of a pre-selected chosen group of people. Some of your faces are indicating that you're very excited <laughs> about this topic. Nevertheless, I'd like to take some time to sort of give another disclaimer and explain how do we address issues of differences among Christians, right? So, how do we understand what is an important doctrine, what is something that is just a difference, what is something that casts you out of the Christian faith, etc. And the way that typically this is done is by setting differences of importance amongst doctrines. So think of it, and the best illustration that I thought of giving was, think of it as three circles, right? So you have a small inner circle that is made up of what we understand as the essential doctrines, right? So that would be something like the deity of Jesus Christ. That's an essential fundamental doctrine. Okay, so if you disagree with that, if you don't hold to that teaching, so obviously you're not part of the Christian faith because part of our Christian faith is that we believe that Jesus Christ was a man who was also God in the flesh. The doctrine of the scriptures. We believe that the scriptures are the inspired word of God. There's not just several human beings that came together and wrote it, but it's God's inspired word that is perfect, etc. Okay, so any doctrine or any teaching that we understand to be an essential doctrine of the Christian faith goes in the inner circle, okay? Now you got the outer circle, which would be doctrines that are important that we should defend and argue about, but we understand that we have to agree, in a sense, to disagree. That would be things like Calvinism, Arminianism, gifts of the Spirit, tongues, healings, and things like that would go on the out the second circle. Because these are doctrines that, like I said, are very important. They have to do with how the essentials are expressed and how we interpret things, but they're still, we're all going to heaven one day, we'll laugh about it in heaven with Jesus. Okay? So, the inner circle, no tolerance, none whatsoever. If you jump out of or if you misinterpret, 
or you wrongly teach the inner circle, no tolerance. You're out of the Christian faith, okay? Jehovah's Witnesses, we don't fellowship with them, okay? Mormons, we don't fellowship with them because they are breaking one of the inner circle essential doctrines of the Christian faith, okay? You have the second ring, which would be differences between Baptists, Pentecostals, Presbyterians, etc. Then you have a third circle, which are those practices that we are like, oh, cool, you guys do that. Awesome. Right. Okay, so that would be like modes of baptism, for example. So you have some Christians who baptize by immersion only. So you're going in the water and you're coming out. Some Christians pour water on you. Some Christians sprinkle water on you. Okay, that's very nice. You guys do that. That's cute, right? Those are practices. We're not going to necessarily agree we may not even fight over it or argue over it. We just understand that different people have different practices, okay? That would be things like church government, all right? So, so you, some churches are elder-led. Some churches have bishops. Some churches, they don't have pastors. They call them brothers or something like that. So different types of church government will follow under the outer circle, okay? Days of worship, okay? Some people do the Saturday, the Sabbath. Some people do Sunday, all right? It's important for us to understand that those three circles need to remain in those three circles. The problem when we, that we enter into is when we take one of the teachings in those circles and then push them where they're not supposed to be. For example, Seventh-day Adventists take their outer circle and they bring it into the inner circle. So if you don't worship on the Sabbath, right, then that's the mark of the beast, you're not part of the church. You know what I mean? Some people are adamant that you need to be baptized by immersion. That that's the only way that you're baptized. You need to be dipped in water. If you were poured upon or sprinkled on when you were younger or whatever, then you have to be rebaptized when you come into this church because we do it the way that it's done. That's the only way that should be done. That's the only real baptism. Okay? That's an outer circle thing, right? Especially if you know the history of baptisms. Like in the early church, they didn't have like makeshift little swimming pools with chlorinated water that you can dip people in, right? They were being persecuted. They were in caves. They were in catacombs. And if Johnny over there got saved during one of our preachings, water was not easy to come by. And we have this jug of water that we've been sharing for the past three weeks. Guess what? Johnny, you're getting water poured over you. That's all we got. Boom. Was that a baptism? Yes, in my book. <laughs> all right? Now, nowadays, we have little makeshift things that we call baptistries, and they got chlorinated water with a nice thermal pump that warms the water for you, you can immerse all day. So that's an outer layer thing, you keep it in the outer layer. The second layer, you keep them in the second layer. And the inner layer, you keep them in the inner layer. There are people who take doctrines that are essential and put them in the outer layer. And you can be a Christian and you can deny Jesus. You can be a Christian and say that Jesus is not deity. You can be a Christian and question the Bible. You keep the things in the layers that they're supposed to be, and then we're fine. We have to understand that. And as the Apostle Paul says, we have to tolerate each other. If you're a true believer, and if you name the name of Christ, and your profession is honest and genuine, I have to put up with you. Because Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with you, neither should I, right? We're not better than anybody. So if you have a friend who claims the name of Christ and he goes to a church where they run around and act crazy and you think that's embarrassing, that's your brother in Christ, 
you put up with it, okay? You put up with your own brothers, you can fight with your own brothers, but at the end of the day, that's your brother, you tolerate him, you put up with him, you share the same father, all right? So in the inner circle, no tolerance, bye-bye, Jehovah's Witnesses. And the second circle, hey, Baptists, Pentecostals, Methodists, Calvinists, you guys are wrong, but we're still brothers. Outer circle, it's cute that you sprinkle babies or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Great, so that's how we sort of approach those differences. So in the question whether or not Calvinists are brothers, yes, they are. They're Christians, okay? They hold to the essential teachings of the Christian faith, justification by grace to faith, all of the essential teachings they hold to them, they just have a different way of looking at things. All right? So, here's the uh, famous, uh, famous slogan that deals with this. Yes, right, that's Latin. That's how I roll. It means that in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Okay? Now, if you speak Spanish, you know that's supposed to rhyme, so... What's his name? Daniels was just dropping bars back then, but that's, okay, that's the slogan, all right? In all, in essentials, unity, that's be the inner circle, unity, okay? In non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity, okay? We put up with our differences. So that's sort of the slogan there. Typically, that's attributed to Augustine, but apparently it's some guy named Moldanius. Okay, world's first rapper. So anyways, in continuing, now that the disclaimer is out of the way, the doctrine of the atonement. Okay, so I'm going to try to get through all of this today. Limited atonement. The idea here is to believe that Christ did not die for all men or for everybody, but for a special select group of people pre-chosen by God from the foundation of the world. Now, that's my language. They won't express it that way. That's the way I say. But basically, the idea is that God unconditionally elected a group of people from the foundation of the world, and he secures their election by Christ coming and paying for their sins and their sins only. Okay? Now, the assertion that Calvinists make is that if Christ died for all men with the intention or even the desire to save all men, then all men would be saved. Okay? Now, remember, the... The fuel, I guess, or the engine underneath all of this is divine determinism. Anybody remembers what that is? It's the idea that God has predetermined whatsoever comes to pass and everything that happens happens because God foreordained it to happen. So obviously, logically speaking, if you buy into the premise and you follow the logic, if God wanted all men to be saved, then he would have predetermined all men to be saved. So the fact that not all men are saved then indicates that God only wanted some people to be saved and only those that Christ came to die for. Okay, so the assertion that they make is that if Christ died for all men, then all men would be saved, which we know that not all men are saved, therefore he did not die for all men. Okay, so here's the quote number one. This is from Edwin Palmer. He says, to them, they'll be non-Calvinists, the atonement is like a universal grab bag. There is a package for everyone, but only some will grab a package. Christ not only shed his blood, he also spilled it. He intended to save all, but only some will be saved. Therefore, some of his blood was wasted, it was spilled. So, again, the assertion is, if Christ 
wanted all men to be saved, and we know that all men are saved, then he wasted his blood on the ones that are not saved. That's the assertion. Okay? And so, the problem with this is that they draw a direct line between Christ dying for somebody and that person automatically getting saved. They don't, they don't have anything in the middle of that. So if Christ wanted Ray to be saved and he died for Ray, then Ray will be saved. So if Carlos is not saved and will never be saved and go to hell, that's because Christ didn't die for him because they draw an automatic line or automatic link from Christ dying to salvation and there's no condition in the middle. There is a difference between a provision for, the, for atonement, Christ provided an atonement, and an application of that atonement. So the non-Calvinist would believe that God can provide an atonement for Carlos, but if Carlos does not apply that atonement by faith, then the provision does not cover him. That's the difference. So we would believe, scripturally, that while Christ could die for all men as a provision, not all men are automatically saved by that death unless they appropriated by faith. That implies that men have an ability to choose, which is what they would deny. If you have somehow a freedom of choice, then a condition can be placed in between Christ dying for you and you being saved. So Christ dies for you, you could be saved on the condition that you repent and believe the gospel. That middle part, they take away. Why? Because before the foundation of the world, God has predetermined whatsoever comes to pass, and whatever happens, happens because of his determination. You see how it flows? You buy into the premise, you follow the logical conclusion, and that's where it leads. Okay? Now, the question is, I got another quote here. He says, For if Christ died for all men, then all men are not saved. The cross of Christ is of no effect. Calvary is a sham. Same thing, he's drawing a direct link between Christ's death and the salvation of all men. So the question, okay, the question that we must ask ourselves, because their doctrine flows. Their doctrine has a logic. It has a reason. The question we ask ourselves, is that what the Scripture teaches? So we go to the Scriptures to see how, what the Scripture says about Christ's death and how they interpret it versus as opposed to what the Scripture actually teaches. So, all right, Romans chapter 5. Now, I didn't put the verses here because, number one, work. Number two, it would be like 24 slides, so... We don't have time for that. So Romans chapter 5, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one, one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one 
trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So what Paul is doing, and we covered this before, is contrasting the condemnation that Adam brought for his one sin and extending to all mankind with the death of Jesus Christ. So Adam, our representative, the first Adam, okay, disobeyed. Christ obeyed. So he's contrasting those two different acts. Now, if you go back to verse 15, he says this. He says, the free gift is not like the trespass. He's talking about Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Now, you have a word here, many, used twice. Okay? He says, the trespass brought condemnation upon many. The free gift of God's grace will bring life to many. Okay? So, the way that they see this is, this is tricky, the first many applies to all men, the second many applies to the elect. Okay? So, straight out of my wife's MacArthur Study Bible, he says this, Paul uses the word many with two distinct meanings in verse 15. Just as he willed the world all in verse 18. Adam brought upon all men the condemnation for only one offense. He's right. His willful act of disobedience. Christ, however, delivers the elect from the condemnation of many offenses. This cannot mean that all men will be saved. Salvation in only those, is only for those who exercise faith in Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, is that the first many means all men... The second many means the elect. The first all in verse 18, if you read verse 18, he says this, Therefore one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So the first all is all men. The second all is the elect. That's the interpretation. Okay, here's the tricky part. It is true that the Apostle Paul uses the word many, which doesn't necessarily mean everybody, right? But the way that Paul uses it, given that he's using the result of the many that were affected by the offense, implies all men die, right? By one disobedience, many died. Who dies? Everybody dies, right? Everybody's dying here, okay? So if the many on the first part of verse 15 means all men, then following the logic of what Paul is doing, the second many has to mean all men. What Paul is doing is that he's giving you how the extent of the disobedience of Adam extended to all men, the effect, so is the gift of Christ extended to all men in the same manner. Because all died, and in Christ, all can be made alive. Now, they have to do this in order to protect the teaching that Christ did not die for all men. You have to change the meaning of that word. Because otherwise, this is from Adam Clark's commentary, he says this, he's commentating on the exact same verse, he says this, that the many of the apostle here means all mankind needs no proof to any but that person who finds himself qualified to deny that all men are mortal. He's saying all men die, therefore the many is all men, because all men die. Okay, 
And if the many, that is, all mankind have died through the offense of one, certainly the gift by grace, which abounds unto the many by Christ Jesus, must, must have reference to every human being. If you follow the logic to what Paul is saying, if the many affects the condemnation, well, logically speaking, the many needs to affect all mankind. If the consequences of Christ's incarnation and death extend only to a few or a select number of mankind, which though they may be considered many in themselves, are few in comparison to the whole human race, then the consequences of Adam's sins have extended only to a few or to the same select number, and if only many and not all have fallen, only that many had need of a redeemer. In other words, if the effects of Christ is only for a few, but that few is correspondent to the ones who were affected by the fall of Adam, then that means that only some were affected by the fall of Adam, and only some die. And if only some die, then all, all those people will have to be the people that need a redeemer. What Adam Clark is saying is he's like, the idea that Christ died for a few cannot be taught out of this verse. Because it simply follows. It's the natural reading of the verse is that if Adam's condemnation extends to all men, then the gift of God corresponding to that must also extend to all men. That's the natural reading of the text. All right? So that's Romans chapter 5. Let's go to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Okay? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says this. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers... Petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay? So the text here says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Pretty simple, right? How do they deal with that verse? Enter one of my favorite doctrines of Calvinism. The two wills of God, okay? The two wills of God. I know, I know, it's creepy. It's the point. The two wills of God. What is the doctrine of the two wills of God? The doctrine of the two wills of God is the idea that God has two wills. There's different ways in which this is named God has the decretive will, sometimes called his sovereign will, sometimes it's called his secret will, sometimes it's called his hidden will. And that is, God's decretive will is sometimes described as sovereign efficacious will by which he brings to pass whatever he pleases by divine decree. Okay? So God's secret will, hidden will, whatever you want to call it, is the decree to predetermine whatsoever comes to pass. Okay? We don't know what's on that will. We don't know the content of it. Only God knows. But what we know is that whatever happens, happens because he foreordained it to happen. So the second will would be God's preceptive will, sometimes called the reveal will, sometimes called the prescriptive will, etc. That would be that the preceptive will of God relates to the revealed commandments of God's published law. When God commands us not to steal, this decree does not carry with the immediate necessity of consequence. What does that mean? God's Reveal will is simply the idea that God may command you to do something. For example, God commands all men to repent, though he may secretly have determined that not all men repent. See what I'm saying? 
So God commands men not to steal, but he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. So if somebody steal, they steal out of God's foreordination. Does that make sense? Okay, bear with me. All right, here is John Piper. Now he is addressing this text. Okay, 1 Timothy. He says this, My aim in this chapter is to show from Scripture that the simultaneous existence of God's will for all persons to be saved and His will to elect unconditionally those who will actually be saved is not a sign of divine schizophrenia or exegetical confusion. A corresponding aim is to show that unconditional election, that is, people being chosen, therefore does not contradict biblical expression of God's compassion for all people and does not nullify sincere offers of salvation to everyone who is lost among the peoples of the world. What he's saying is that though this text say that God desires all men to be saved and God may outwardly in his revealed will desire all men to be saved, he can in his secret will unconditionally only elect some to be saved and only desire some to be saved. It implies that God decrees one state of affairs while also willing and teaching that a different state of affairs should come to pass. In other words, basically it boils down, God may outwardly express one will, though inwardly and secretly go against opposite of what he's outwardly expressing. All right? Well, we must certainly distinguish between what God would like to see happen and what he actually does will to happen, and both of these things can be spoken to or spoken of as God's will. So, tricky language. He says, we must distinguish between what God would like to see happen, that is, he would like to see men repent and come to him, and what he actually does will to happen, that is, that only the elect come and repent and come to him, and that those two things, though, look opposite, are the expression of God's will. You need more. Okay, here's R.C. Sproul. Yes, that is me with R.C. Sproul. That's right. Okay, he says this. His laws, okay, his laws, whether they be fine in the scripture or in the heart, are binding. Okay, so what God says, what God commands is binding. We have no authority to violate this will. We have the power, ability to thwart the perceptive will of God, that is his review will, though never the right to do so. Nor can we excuse ourselves for sinning by saying, Kesera, Kesera. It may be God's sovereign or hidden will that we be permitted, now those quotations are his, permitted, permitted means predetermined, okay, to sin as he brings his sovereign will to pass, even though and by means of the sinful acts of people, okay. You have no excuse when you sin against God because you sin against God out of your own volition, okay? It's your own choice to sin against God. And God has given us a law saying that you should not sin. Though, secretly, hiddenly, he may have foreordained all things to happen, which includes your disobedience. But that doesn't mean that you have an excuse. That's pretty much what he's saying. Okay, so I've tried to be very nice and generous, okay, so far, but this is the type of thing you have to do, I believe. I honest, it is my opinion. This is my opinion. This may not be the views shared by followers of the Way Church. This is just my opinion. This teaching sounds after the fact made up to me. In other words, you have to do this in order to try to figure out how to accommodate something that you believe into what the text is saying. Because the text 
is kicking back against your idea. That's how it seems to me. Now, I've been studying Reformed theology since 2006, okay? This is actually pretty much all Calvinists hold to this teaching. And this is how they explain all these verses that say, oh, God is not willing that anyone should perish, for God so loved the world. This is how they defend. This is why I, didn't, I gave you this, because I don't want to spend time giving you all those verses. This is how they address those verses, okay? Now, the text is very simple, okay? If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, the text says this. First of all, I urge that prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, kings, and those who are in authority, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Natural reading of this text is pray for all men, because God desires all men to be saved. And if, all, if men around you, kings and those in authority were to be saved, guess what would happen? You would lead a very peaceful, quiet life. Okay? This is simple, straightforward text. Now, some men are honest enough, like my good Calvinist friend Charles Spurgeon, this is what he said. He's a Calvinist. You, you must, most of you, be acquainted with the general method which our older Calvinistic friends dealt with this text. All men, they say, that is some men, as if the Holy Ghost could not have said some men if he had meant some men. Okay? All men, they say, is all sorts of men, as if the Lord could not have said all sorts of men if he had meant that. The Holy Ghost, by the apostles, has written all men. And unquestionably, he means all men. I know how to get rid of the force of the alls according to the critical method which some time ago was very current, but I do not see how it can be applied here without due regard for the truth. My love of consistency with my own doctrinal views is not great enough to allow me knowingly to alter a single text of scripture. He admits the fact. I'm a Calvinist, but the text says what it says. I'm going with what the text is saying, and I don't care if it doesn't flow with my thing, okay? Now, he was willing to live with that inconsistency. I don't believe you have to, okay? If you have a proper understanding, I don't believe you have to. But he was honest enough, honest enough to be able to admit that the text is saying what it's saying. And we leave it at that. Two wills of God? Everybody get the idea? No? Okay. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, if you go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 10. What does the scripture teach about God's atonement and reconciliation? This is what he says. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul is saying that we have received through Christ and through the death of his son, a reconciliation and that we have been reconciled to God. So the question is, who was God reconciling? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all things are from God 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, he has committed us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as, through, as though God were making an appeal to us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5 that we have been reconciled. And in 2 Corinthians, he tells us who God was reconciling. It is that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So God is making a provision for the world of atonement. He's not counting the world's trespasses against them yet. He will one day. But right now, his ministry of reconciliation is that he was in Christ bringing the world to him. Now, who is the world? Okay, who is the world? 1 John 2, this is what the scripture teaches. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Okay? Now, the way that they handle this verse is to claim that the world refers to the elect Gentiles. Okay? If Ed MacArthur in his uh, Bible study says that, that... When he says our sins, not only our sins, he's referring to the Jewish elect believers, but also for the sins of the whole Gentile believers. Okay. Nonsense. All right. The first John epistle has no indication of any differences between Gentiles or Jews. The word Jew is not even used in the epistle. The word Gentile is not used in the epistle. In fact, in first John chapter five, this is who John is addressing. He says this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's his audience. You, believer, who? Whoever is believing right now, I write this to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Who is the world? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also his lust. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. The world is sinful men. So Christ is not only our Savior, believer, elect, believer, but he's also the savior of everybody else. So even though all men may not always believe all men, but in this case, all the men who are saved, plus the world that he just mentioned, Christ is the savior of both. So those who are saved, he's the savior of. Those who are not saved, he's not the savior of. That means he's the savior of all men. Okay? Simple text. Natural reading of the scripture. Okay? First Timothy chapter 4. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. He is the Savior of all men because He has made a provision for all men, especially of believer because those who repent and put their faith, that atonement is now applied to them. 
So the atonement of Christ is unlimited, is universal for all men, but is only applied to those who repent and put their faith in Christ Jesus. That is the natural reading of scriptures. Second Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master or the Lord who bought them, bringing swift destructions upon themselves. The text here says that the false teachers who will bring swift destructions upon themselves were bought by the Lord. Christ paid and died for those who will be destroyed because they did not repent. When Christ was being nailed to the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Okay? So every single person who does not repent and put their faith in Christ Jesus, Christ died to forgive the sins of that person. That's what the scripture teaches. Now that may not flow with a particular logic or idea, right, of predetermination or whatnot, but it's what the text simply says. It says that Christ died to pay for the sins of people who will one day end up in hell for all eternity. And that atonement will secure their condemnation. See, that's why it's not wasted, like he says. The blood of Christ is not wasted because when people who deny Christ and who will not repent for their sins are judged before God, God is going to bring this, the blood of His Son and says, what did you do with this? So you have no excuse. I provided, I gave you a million ways out not to sin, yet you still sin. And even after you sin, I provide an atonement for you. Here's the blood of my son. There's his body beaten up. What did you do? So that blood is not going to be wasted. That blood is going to secure the condemnation of those who reject the provision that Christ made for them. So it is clearly taught in Scripture that Christ is the Savior of all men, but only those who repent or are believers can appropriate that salvation or that atonement. And so, Hebrews chapter 2, But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned Him, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of His death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for every man. 2.9, Hebrews 2.9. He might taste death for every man. So, plainly and natural, the scripture teaches that Christ died for every man that has ever lived and desired all men to be saved without distinction and is not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. This is not inconsistent with the scriptures. Okay? Now, The problem arises when you take a system, as good as and logical as it may be, and you try to make it fit into the scriptures. So you run into problems. And that's where you end up with things like the two wills of God and all these teachings trying to explain 
away things that the text plainly says. Okay? Now, to the non-Calvinist, the simple reading of Scripture is that in between his death and our salvation, there's a middle part called you and your free choice. And your free choice, as sinful as you are, God in His grace bringing the gospel to you, the grace to open your eyes, to draw you to Him. He providentially put you at the right spot that you needed to be to hear the message that you needed to hear, etc. At the end of the day, you can deny or reject the gospel offer of salvation. And if you do accept it, then you will be saved. And if you don't, you don't accept it, then you're not. That has nothing to do with the provision that has been made. The atonement is unlimited in its provision for the sins of mankind. And so we enter into trouble when we try to explain away what the scripture says. Furthermore, I got a quote here from this fella. This is C.S. Lewis. Anybody know C.S. Lewis? Chronicles of Narnia, okay. Good. Here's a good quote from him, which I think says a lot. Okay, now... He's addressing the issue of the two wills of God. This is what he says. He says, If God's moral judgment differs from ours, so that our black may be his white, we can mean nothing by calling him good, or for to say God is good while asserting that his goodness is wholly other than ours is really only to say that God is we know no what. And an utterly unknown quality in God cannot give us moral grounds for loving or obeying him. If he is not, in our sense, good, we shall obey, if at all, only through fear, and should be equally ready to obey an omnipotent fiend. What well, he's saying, that whatever God is in his secret will, cannot be different than what he is and what he reveals. Because if he is, then we don't even know if what he reveals is even true. If he is not good in the sense in which he commands us to be good, if he is good in some other things that we don't know how he is good, then we don't even know what we're worshiping. <laughs> because what we might be worshiping would be something completely different to what we think it is. So we cannot even trust what he reveals to us because we don't even know what's behind that. That's what he's saying. Now, we can obey through fear. I don't know if you guys, I know you guys all listened to what I posted and took notes. Um, especially Carlos. But uh, when asked, it was, it, was an it was an interview that was done to MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and Lincoln Duncan, and they asked him, if God predetermines only some people to be saved, then why should we preach? And his answer was, because we're commanded to. And he's right. We are commanded to. Okay? We're commanded to. So he's right. But what he's saying is, we just, I, I just obey God because he said it, which is true. But behind God telling us to preach the gospel to the all, all men is the idea is because I want all men to be saved and I will make provisions for their salvation. Calvinists are very evangelistic and they do a lot of evangelism, more than some non-Calvinists. But they do so because God commands and because that's the means by which God brings his elect. The problem that I find sometimes is, can I walk up to a stranger that I don't know and say, Christ died for you, repent and believe. I cannot honestly do that because I don't know who the elect are. Who are the elect? I don't know. 
unless they're saved, I don't know who they are. So I don't know Ray here. I don't know if he's elect. I can preach the gospel to him. I can say, Ray, you repent, and you need to repent. But I don't know if Christ died for Ray. He may. He may not. I don't know. So can I honestly say, hey, Christ died for you? I can't. Cannot. Honestly, if I held to this system, I could not do that. And some of them don't. Some of them do. Some of them don't. Some of them do inconsistently, I believe. So the idea behind this teaching, I believe, is limiting not only the atonement, but also evangelism, at least theologically, consistency. It limits it because I cannot honestly tell anybody Christ wants you to be saved and he died for you because I don't know. Now, if you're already saved, yes, Christ died for you. Maybe, unless you're one of the false believers and you're never really saved. I don't know. But I can at least I can make a general statement. So some Calvinists believe in what they call the general offer of the gospel, meaning we can honestly, generally say God commands you to repent, but it's just a general offer. We can consistently, non-Calvinists, make an offer of the gospel that says, because Christ died for you and he wants you to be saved. And if you're not saved, it's on you. You will go to hell. And in judgment, God is not going to want you to be saved. He's going to condemn you. But right now, while it is today, this is the day of salvation. Okay? Don't wait till tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. So it's an honest offer of the gospel. So, 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not slow. I mean, God is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient towards you. He's extending his hands patiently. He could, bring, he could have bring judgment upon this earth many years ago. But he is slow. He is long-suffering. He is patient. Why? Why does God allow all these things to happen? We watch the news. Why are all things, why doesn't God put a stop to it right now? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why. Because he's extending his hands to a sinful world, sending out his church, his gospel, his Holy Spirit to bring conviction so that none should perish, but all should reach repentance. So that is the teaching of the text of the Bible. And I believe the practical implications is that we as a church can make a sincere, honest to God offer of the gospel to any human being, knowing that behind us, God is desiring all human beings to be saved, okay? So that's why I took time, which I believe this is important, for us to understand that there's a genuine offer of the gospel, not only towards uh, the sinful world, but towards ourselves, towards our children, towards our families, and towards everybody. God is not willing that none should perish, but to all come to repentance. Amen? Amen. All right. We're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your scriptures, for the simplicity that is in the gospel, Lord. 
We thank you, Lord, that you um, desire not only our salvation, but the salvation of those who are around us, of our family members, of our children, of our friends at work, and any human being that has ever walked this life and in this world, that you die for them to secure their salvation, even those who reject you eventually and perish eternally, Lord. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.